Welcome back. It's time for another episode of Maya, My Yoga Audio, where it's time for you and your mind to be on the mat. And I'm so excited to welcome back our first guest of 2022 to the show, our first interview. We haven't done one since December of 2021. And I want to introduce you all to Jasper James. And how I met Jasper is through, again, surprise, surprise, we've had more than one guest from Creative Mornings. Jasper's talk on Creative Mornings was during the pandemic of 2020 that is still going and we all know so well. They did a virtual presentation on the Black Bill of Rights, and we're going to get more into that later. But we later connected online through mutual interests in yoga, spirituality, and the mixed race experience. So I want to tell you a little bit about Jasper as the co-founder of Activism Articulated, a crisis communications firm she co-owns with her wife, Darcy. Jasper James is in Sacramento, where they are one of the only advocacy communications firms that are run by queer mixed race women of color that provides media training and crisis consulting for organizations and community groups nationwide. Jasper is a multifaceted, diversity-trained entrepreneur who leads through service. From their past as a billboard recording artist, a multi-instrumentalist and writer, an event producer, their most recent status as an inventor and regional organizer-director for the 2020 Michael Bloomberg campaign, Jasper is also an artist and digital strategist. They lead creative on all projects, incorporating strong public relations and project management skills. And with over 15 years of experience in solving big problems and creating systems that help businesses run more efficiently, Jasper has the ability to lead, activate, and amplify important messages through an equitable, creative, and necessary lens. During their tenure as one of the only five Black sitting female presidents in the nation for the Women's March Sacramento chapter, Jasper also co-founded Women's March Black, an all-Black branch of Women's March National Leadership. Jasper is an active member of the ACLU Sacramento Chapter Board, the Sacramento Stonewall Democratic Club, March On, and belongs to the ACLU Speakers Bureau and the newly formed AB 392 Oversight Committee. Jasper also holds a degree in audio engineering and significant education in holistic theology. Jasper, (laughs) that was such a mouthful, but welcome to the show. I'm like, are you really talking about me? (laughs) (laughs) That's you. (laughs) It's it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. You're so, so welcome. And I also want to mention, um, this was going to come up later, but many of you may have heard about Jasper as one of the Sacramento Bee's top 25 Black changemakers of 2022. And I'll link the post to that announcement in the show notes for this episode. There's a little video and an article where they talk about what they've been working on. So I'd love for you all to see that. Jasper, I want to start off with a big question, one that you and I have been talking (laughs) about a lot offline over the last uh, few days and weeks, even months when you first learned about my near-death experience. And it was me learning that you also have had a near-death experience. And I've shared about mine before on this podcast and in my book, but I was hoping you would talk to us today about your experience. And yeah, just more about that. I know you haven't really talked publicly about that before. So I I hope you'll be willing to do that today. Yeah. I mean, it's wow. Yeah. The past few weeks that we've been talking about all of this stuff is really, it's been a lot because, you know, Near-death experiences 
to begin with are traumatic. And there is a lot that you you remember and there's a lot that you forget. Mm-hmm. And then you don't remember that until something like someone saying, so tell me about your experience. You're like, oh man, how did I live through that? Right. So, you know, just to kind of wrap it up pretty quickly, uh, I was 21 and young and just ready to have experiences. And uh, I found myself in St. Lucia. And, you know, I called myself going over there and trying to stay over there and live there. I was there with my then girlfriend at the time. And, um, you know, everything was cool for the most part. And, uh, you know, I found myself at this event, which was, you know, pretty much sold to me as African Liberation Day. So with me being Black and with me being in, you know, St. Lucia, an island for the first time in my life, that's actually surrounded by Black people. I'm originally from Long Island, New York, (laughs) so by way of Las Vegas, Nevada. So I grew up with, I think there was 10 Black people in my graduating class of 650. So just to give you an idea. So I was just like, yeah, I'm trying to learn more about my roots partially while I'm there. So we go there and it's definitely, you know, I didn't know what to expect, but it was definitely not what I was expecting. We got there and we saw like literally 12 men and then the rest were women. (laughs) And we were like, what the heck is going on? You know, so uh, a full day later, Um, we were, you know, they had asked us if we would stay for a couple of more days, but, you know, we just had this very strange experience, which was, so they had given us food, but they gave us different food. And at one point we kind of just switched food so that we could just taste it. Right. Cause I mean, we're not used to eating St. Lucian food. So we were like, Hmm, you know, let's just figure it out. So she took a couple of bites I took a couple of bites, but what I didn't know was that I was actually getting very high from it. And I had never before this time taken any kind of hallucinogen. So I didn't understand what being like tripping meant or felt like what was happening, what was happening at all. I was just kind Mm -hmm. of like, wow, okay, I'm just feeling really weird. That's all I knew. It just felt weird. But my girlfriend at the time had you know, done LSD before, but she had only taken a few bites, but she had told me after the fact that she had felt kind of weird. So basically what we had to come to terms with is we had to do a little bit of of research on what could potentially have done that to me. So she did some research and she found out that um, St. Lucia is one of the only places in the world that grows something by the name of Datura. And Datora is a drug that's used for, from what I've gathered and understand, for indigenous cultures to do um, journeys. Mm-hmm. But the main thing is, is that when they take this drug, that they are with someone that can bring them through the journey. Right. Um, Datora is different because unlike every other drug out there, that Torah is undetectable in your bloodstream. Uh, and the other very bad thing about this drug is that 
the more cortisol and the more chemicals of fear that's released within your bloodstream, the worse the Mm -hmm. drug gets. So, which is the reason why that it can lead someone to dying based on the fact that a lot of people have heart attacks. But that's part of the reason why, like I said, it's very important that you have a guide with you when you take that Torah, because the guide is there to help you not go to that point where you start to Mm -hmm. just like freak out. So, like I said, we had to do a, a, a bit of figuring out what happened to me. But prior, you know, let me just uh, kind of go back a little bit. So I was getting higher and higher. Like I said, I didn't realize it. But what was happening was I, I was having extreme hallucinations. And it was really, mm-hmm. really bad to the point where my girlfriend at the time, she had to help me leave the country because that's how bad it was getting. So she called my parents, my parents wired us money, got us plane tickets, flew home to New York. And by then, by the time we got home, I was, I was losing my mind. Like I could not tell reality from fiction anymore. And so they, you know, they drove me and they were so concerned about me. So they brought me to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, through this whole process, obviously, you know, like they did a bunch of blood tests and they were just like, well, we're not finding anything in, in their system. So that was how we kind of figured out that what was given to me was Datora. And it was also specifically in that area <laughs> that mm-hmm. we were staying in. So we just kind of like, I was just like, okay. But while I was in the hospital, that's when I had my near-death experience. Okay. Um. And I believe what happened, like I said, I've had to put things together. So, I mean, just let me say, it's like, I know that I've heard a lot of different experiences regarding people who have had near-death experiences. And, you know, a lot of times there's a, happens to the doctors and they're just like, oh, you died, you were flatlined for this amount of time. Um, and I'm, I'm sharing this because I think it's important for people to understand that sometimes people don't know that they've had near-death experiences, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. It, it depends, you know, like you could have had this experience and you had no idea what it was. You never told anyone about it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to to say that it's, it's really important to, I think, to share this version of what could potentially happen. Um, mm-hmm. because I do understand now that I was drugged. And so again, there's another layer of trauma and, mm-hmm. and being triggered in that space because you don't know what happened. You know, like I really, I really, honestly, I don't know what happened. All I know is that on the other side of all of it, I wasn't the same. Mm -hmm. So, um, I got to the hospital. They say they couldn't find anything in my system, but I was clear that I was not well. Right. Um, And at that time, I didn't really know what other drug was in my system. I had no idea this happened afterwards. Mm -hmm. But um, essentially what happened was they gave me drugs on top of that. So they couldn't see what was in my system. So they actually made it worse, I think, because what they put me on was very strong. Mm -hmm. So I think that between the drug that I already had in my system plus the drugs that they were giving me, that just made me cross over. 
Like toxic concoction. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, it was the kind of thing where they didn't even know. Like it wasn't Mm -hmm. like you could know, you know, it's almost like when, you know, people say they go into meditation and they go deep into meditation and they're kind of like in this space Mm -hmm. and it's not in the 3D, but it's kind of like in this space. Yeah. That's, I think that's Mm -hmm. kind of what happened. So there wasn't like any bright light at the end of the tunnel for me, but there was a, what I would call an entity Mm-hmm. But, but they didn't look like an entity. They look like they, they took the form of the thing that I thought was the most, the least, what was it? What did they say? They actually said it specifically. They were like, we took on the form that you would be the least triggered by. And so oh. to me, in, in my subconscious mind was a skinny, short, white guy with glasses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, and the thing was, is that right away, they didn't talk to me with their mouths. They didn't use their mouths. They were, it was specifically telepathic. Now, you know, you get a lot of people out there saying, oh my gosh, you know, we have telepathy and we're soulmates and everything. I'm just like, no. (laughs) I was like, you have not experienced telepathy until you really, like you're having a conversation with someone and no one's moving their mouths. Mm-hmm. And it's like all happening like in your like cerebellum. It's like your brain. It's like inside your brain, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's just it's an automatic conversation. And so um, the thing that was typical was that I had a life review. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's not really too much that I can remember about the life review but there was something that stood out. I remember that I met this woman <laughs> at a club and you know, like when you, when you meet someone and you know that you like them and they like you, but you're mm-hmm. kind of like, you kind of like doing a dance. Up. You're doing a dance. Yeah. You're not really, you're like, you, you almost want to jump on each other, but then you just don't, you know what I mean? Um, and so I had this relationship with this woman, but she had like, you know, it was clear that she was wealthy. Um, You know, she, every time she went anywhere, she was like full drip, you know, all her entourage. It was, she never went anywhere with any less than six people, like all the time. Mm -hmm. And this woman was a part of my life review. And I remember, and I remember telepathically saying, like questioning, like, really like that person (laughs) and it was like the response was was that i was protected from that person Mm. like that something it was something about that person that would have taken me in a very different direction and that was part of the reason why it never really fully like i didn't really try to push it Mm -hmm. At all, which was kind of not like me because, you know, 21, you're cute. I'm six feet tall, you know, light skinned complexion. I'm like, you know, I can do it. But so, yeah, so we went through the process of, of going through the life experience. And then it was the most rapid, the reason why the world is here explanation. <laughs> that was like telepathic. Mm-hmm. So it was like. I saw the, it was like in, in hyperspeed, you know, how mm-hmm. the, how the world was made, 
all the different colors that were there that we don't ever see in 3D space-time continuum because our eyes are not able to see those colors. And I realized, I was like, wait, so what we're seeing is like the muted version of things, right? And so everything was big. Like I was in the universe. And I was in the universe because I was out of my body. So it was like I could feel myself as part of everything, of the stars, of of the breath of life, of all that is. And it was like I was experiencing it and it was experiencing me. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it was like, imagine hearing the history of the world, which you know would take a really long time in two seconds. And so, and again, I'm not really sure how long this was happening on the other side. Right. On the awake side of being. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, I was like, okay. I was like, so what now? And they were just like, well, you know, do you want to stay or do you want to go back? And I was like, I want to stay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm out of my body, you know, Mm -hmm. like I'm blissed out because, you know, I'm, I'm free of all of the, all of the programmed responses and behaviors and the drama of of being a person on this planet and all of the drama that comes with it and racism and being queer. Like I was like, I don't want to go back to that. So this whole time, this entity was speaking telepathically to me. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, they reach over, they stop talking to me telepathically and then they whisper in my ear. I don't remember what they said. Now, I have a feeling now, today, what they said, Mm -hmm. but it took me years to figure out, like, what it was. But essentially, after they whispered the thing in my ear of what I was here to do, I got really serious. And then I looked him straight in the eye, and I was just like, you know, like, when you're about to go off to battle kind of thing, Mm -hmm, it was just like, mm -hmm. okay, you know, I'll go back. And... I woke up and I was isolated by myself in a hospital room. And that was, that was really what happened. It was, that was it. The arms on my hairs, the hairs on my arms (laughs) are standing up because you, the last few sentences of what you just said, and I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, in yoga, one of the like seminal texts is the Bhagavad Gita. And it's like Arjuna, the warrior is going off to war. And he has this crisis of like, what am I really fighting for? And so when you were just talking about, you're like, okay, it's like I'm going to battle. I was like, oh, that's Arjuna. That was your version in my mind, in my mind's eye of, of you coming back to go to the battle that you had to fight here. Yeah, like I had the same resolve in my tone and my voice the Mm -hmm. way that ukrainians have today yeah like Mm -hmm. it was that it was that serious you know like even he right now i'm talking about i'm like getting emotional it's an energy to that 
serious energy. Oh my goodness. To understand that you have you have to fight. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's that's a lot. It's a really personal story and I know you haven't shared it publicly, I don't think, before. So I want to thank you for going there and being willing to talk about it. And as you said, I really believe there are probably many other people who've had similar experiences and haven't vocalized or haven't realized, you know, something that they've been through that was so life-changing. And that was my own experience too, right? Had to happen three times for me to finally wake up and (laughs) start talking about it. Yeah, but you you know... (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, the interesting thing is, too, is that there is a point where if you don't follow it, you can go back, like, you can regress. Yeah. You know, and that was also, that was like the next phase of things that happened. Like, when I left the hospital, and I, you know, I I was living with my parents for a while to get myself back on my feet. Right. And, you know, I I grew up in a born-again Pentecostal Christian home. So, you know, it was a lot about going to church and I mean, and, and so just to kind of go back to the experience, I mean, when I say that whole conversation, I didn't really get into it, but it's like, you know, the history of the world and all that is in two seconds, that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that included that reincarnation is really a thing and that all of the religions of the world have it slightly right and a lot wrong. Mm-hmm. that um that essentially what we're here to do is to collectively understand this experience as a collective <laughs> you know and so that was the piece was that when i i came out of this space of <sighs> being so close to the veil and I, I do believe, you know, like I said, I did have to do quite a bit of sleuthing for myself and, you know, bless my girlfriend at the time because like she, she understood, you know, like she was spiritually inclined, you know, she's an Aquarius. So she, you know, she's just as crazy as I am. Yeah. See, <laughs> so, you know, she was like, I'm going to figure out what happened to you. And then she kind of put everything together and we kind of talked about it. And so I, I I do believe that the medication that they gave me on top of having this very powerful drug in my system also brought me to a place where I had a spontaneous Kundalini experience Mm -hmm. and I had known nothing. (laughs) I didn't understand anything about that. I had never heard of Carl Jung before and she brought me to this spiritual bookshop Mm. and I was drawn to the book and it was about when he had his spontaneous Kundalini experience. And so, you know, and I'm, I'm bringing it back to this for a second because I want people to understand that like, typically if, if you're not in a position to have access to healthcare, I was a black person with, no health care, no job, no way to really go out and keep a job because I just had this very traumatic experience that pretty much left me mentally and emotionally as 
you know, I, I couldn't tell what was up and what was down. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was this moment where I was, you know, thinking to myself that I was going to regress back to my old way of thinking after all of this thing had happened, right? Like you were saying, you know, it's just like, I had to do this three times and <laughs> <laughs> I ended up being messed up, right? Because it took me three times to get it. And, mm-hmm. but there was a point where it was just like, I was still very close to the veil and I was getting these messages. They didn't mm-hmm. stop. Okay. And that's, so it was like the Datura kind of wore off and then the spontaneous Kundalini experience started to ramp up. Dang. So that, okay. yeah, so that it was just like, okay, you have a choice right now. And here it is. You either A, take this situation as the important thing that it is for you. Because you, you said this was going to happen. You made this happen. This is you. This is you making this happen so that you can cut off, you know, cut the cut the ties to all of the different thought ideologies and religion like ties that I had. Like this was my way of of being able to cut those ties and like be able to look to what other truths are out there. And um they were like, if you don't pay attention to what you're doing right now, you're going to turn yourself into a vegetable. That clear. That clear. That upfront about it. Wow. That upfront. And it was like, you either move through this and take it as your truth. Like, this is your new truth now. And it's not easy. It's not like you're just like one person no, one day is, and then you're no, another this, person the next day. Years. Yeah, no, this is 21 years of me going like my family is all ministers and preachers and deacons. Mm. Like my mm-hmm. family built the church on the corner. You know, like that's my legacy. My legacy is 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 ministry. And it's a missions. lot of conditioning. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but it was just like, nope. <laughs> Like we specifically made this happen for you so that you could have enough evidence. Like that whole experience was the evidence that I personally needed to be able to have the strength and the courage to abandon everything that I had learned up to that point because I couldn't deny it. Yeah. Yeah. Like no one can take that from you. That's the thing about near death experiences People can tell you that you're lying or you're making stuff up, but when it comes down to it, no one can take that from you. No one can take Mm -hmm. that experience from you because it is your specific experience. And the things that happen in those experiences are outside of the space-time continuum. So you're experiencing everything outside of the third dimensional way of being. And the only way you can do that is if you leave your body. So you either do that through meditation or you do that through almost dying. Yeah. And that's really like the truth about why I, I, you know, despite the fact that my experience personally was, you know, somewhat off the beaten track from others, you're typical, if you can call it typical. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's the reason why it was because I, I knew I just knew, like, I was just like, there were too many things that happened that didn't make sense. That has me understand that that was my truth now. Mm -hmm. So 
in that conversation, I was like, okay. And then I had basically, I, I started, I cleaned the slate. Like I didn't believe in anything. I didn't believe in, I believe that there was a higher power. I believe right. that there was something going on. I believed in reincarnation. I didn't believe in reincarnation before this happened to me. So there were a lot of things that it was just like, I had one life up to this point and it halted. And then it was this whole different person, a different person to the point where I was able to do things that I wasn't able to do prior to that. So for example, one of the things, so my, my dad was an interior exterior painter. Okay. And, you know, so he taught me the trade, but it was, you know, I mean, painting houses, I never really tried to do art. But when I was staying there after this happened, I started painting. And he was like, did you always know how to paint like this? But like painting artistically or painting, painting artistically? No, painting oh, okay. artistically. Like okay. I was painting like pictures and like, mm -hmm. you know, sceneries. And he was like, I don't remember you being able to paint like this. I was like, I didn't used to. And he was just like, so you know how to paint now? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me and he kind of shook his head and was like, hmm, okay. Um, you know, other things that happened after that was that I was, I became empathic. Um, and again, you know, when people talk about, you know, oh, we have telepathy, it's like, I'm always left to wonder, do you really know what you're talking about? Because you can kind of pick, you know, people can pick up on vibes mm -hmm. and say, oh, my God, I was just thinking that same thing. But when, <laughs> when you, again, I'll just say it again, when, you, when people are really telepathic, it's not what you think. Like, you are seriously, like, you're having, like, I'm having a conversation with you right now, like, how I'm talking to you right now. Like, that's how you hear people in your head when you're telepathic. Mm-hmm. And um, that was kind of the start of my spiritual journey was that whole series of events leading up to that. And then me having that very clear conversation from spirit, I guess, that was just like, look, you either need to turn it around or you're going to lose it all. And it's up to you. And I made the choice in that moment. And that's when I decided to leave my parents' house because I knew that I couldn't stay there and not go to church. Hmm. That was big when I was growing up too. Yeah. Wow. So, and I know there's a longer period of time than like the next question that I want to ask you is I know after this happened to you, it set off a series of events, right? Of life choices. So you moved out of your parents' house and I'm probably jumping ahead several years, <laughs> but, um, I was, yeah, if you feel comfortable moving to the, to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, or is sure, there anything yeah. else you wanted to say about, okay. Um, to come like directly back down to, to earth. Cause we've been in such a, an esoteric <laughs> space, but I believe it's accessible to everyone, right. In our, our dream space in our meditation space and what we experience in life and these kind of conversations we have where it's like, it's open to everybody to make those choices. And I wondered if you would sort of tell us about how things led to you. And it's me kind of snatching a headline here too, because I just find it so interesting. 
even though I know it's upsetting and, and there's a lot of negativity associated with this, but you encountered a situation where you interacted with a self-described shaman and QAnon conspiracy theorist at a, a yoga or convention event. Um, <laughs> yeah. And everybody who's listening to this knows who this person is. So I don't need to say their name. They've now been sentenced to 41 months in prison for their role in the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C., um, and was widely photographed wearing a fur-covered hat with horns coming out of it. So yeah. when you told me you had been in a in a, a space with this person, I was like, what? How did that happen? So I think your journey of your spiritual journey, your near-death experience, and what after that led you to a lot of different things. And so my understanding is you were at a convention of some sort and this person was there. Would, would you tell us a little bit about how that went down? Yeah. So um, just to kind of go back a few years prior to this, uh-huh. um, uh, I had become a Reiki master. Mm. So the Reiki had kind of really started my new, I guess, spiritual journey. You know, yeah, like, it was kind of, yeah, it was, it was kind <laughs> of like, you know, um, when you're able to send people energy through space and time, it just changes you, you know, and for those who don't know what Reiki is, I'm sure that a lot of people in your audience probably do. Um, but Reiki, the thing about Reiki is that it, it relies on an attunement and that attunement is essentially the process of them spiritually unblocking aspects of your energetic frequency. So it's, you know, it, they open up your palms. That gives you the healing ability where the energy is flowing through your hands. But that kind of pushed me into organically, it pushed me into learning more about sound, vibration healing and sound healing. Because parts of Reiki also include sound interpretation, like every chakra has three different notes that coincide with the chakra. So you're able to balance them out also using sound. It also mm-hmm. incorporates elements of like light, understanding light and using light and stones and things of those nature. So, um, okay, so I had started to build a spiritual life of my own. Mm-hmm. And it brought me to this place called PantheaCon, which is now defunct, but it was essentially at the time, it was the biggest spiritual convention on the West coast. And it happened annually. And, you know, I mean, I wasn't really that much into it because, you know, I was just like, okay, whatever, (laughs) you know, but it was like, my wife got me to go because she said that there were going to be guys there with kilts. That's I was like, well, there'll be swords. And she's like, maybe. So, you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, we got to have fun with these things, too. It can't I mean, be all serious you know, all the it's, time. It's, it's, it can't be all serious all the time, right? So then, you know, we went there. And, you know, at this time, I mean, I've always been an advocate, but I've pretty much been like a gay advocate. And I've been an advocate since I was, you know, in my mid twenties. Um, and, but, you know, I was already given side eye to, you know, any white person who called themselves a shaman. And, you know, I was just like, really though, like, how are you a shaman? What did you do? 
you know, <laughs> were you really inducted by a shaman someplace, some indigenous, you know, group of mm-hmm. individuals tell you that you should be a shaman? Like what, you know, so I was already kind of suspect to it, but you know, I was like, whatever. I was like, my wife wanted to go. And, you know, my wife has her own spiritual journey that she was like looking to, to get more involved in, to find more about. So, you know, she was just trying to, to connect and which I totally understood because that's one of the things that I was really missing about church, you know, and having a spiritual community, uh, was that I ended up being a, a solo practitioner, not because I wanted to, but because there was no other choice. You know, there was no other space that was welcoming enough for me. And, you know, the other thing that was really difficult was that at a certain point, if you're an activist, which I had already, you know, I had started to become a social justice activist, that it's kind of difficult. It was, it became difficult for me to reconcile being a social justice activist when I knew that church was the white American evangelical church that many black people are, you know, still hold to and go to. And, you know, I was just like, how can you make that make sense? Cause it just didn't make sense for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a really hard time with it. And I was just like, I think if I have a hard time with it, then other people have to have a hard time with it too. It was true. Like I did meet some people who were there at this convention, the spiritual convention, that also shared similar thoughts about it. This was in 2000 and I want to say 15 or 16, 2015. And so we were there for a couple of days and each day they had one of these like little daily newsletter things that would tell you where everything was we took over an entire hotel. So in this one newsletter, this one day, there was like a satire uh, spot, but I guess no one really understood that it was satire. So the thing was, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was something similar or along the lines of this. Are you tired of hearing politics and everything getting racial in your spiritual communities or your spiritual spaces? Dot, dot, dot. We are too. Come to room X to to air your grievances. So obviously, you know, everyone, like, we knew it was a satire, but apparently there were people there that did not. And so what ended up happening was that the room was full. And it was all filled (laughs) with all these white spiritual guru people, you know, yoga this and... You know, I have a dragon sitting on my shoulder that I speak to. His name is Igor, you know, but they're the ones who were saying, you know, we're so tired of everything just being like everyone calling each other racist and this and that. And, but then it was real, you know, so then that was like the first red flag. Um, and then I personally wasn't there, but I saw the person in which <laughs> you spoke to. <laughs> He I, saw, I saw him there. Yeah. <laughs> he shall not be named. He was there. And he was there with a like a group of big Vikings. Like mm-hmm. there was it was a huge white supremacist Viking sect. And they Eek. were they were on the floor above where the POC um suite was. 
you know, so we were trying to make safe space and, you know, cause I mean, any type of spiritual space that you're making on the West coast, you know, it's going to be mostly the, the majority of people that were there were obviously white, mm-hmm. you know? So I'd say maybe there was roughly 3% black people there. Mm-hmm. Maybe. So what happened was, is that there was a physical altercation that happened and in, in the room, in the space. Yeah. And racial slurs were said and there was something that happened, you know, and I knew the people who it happened to right. because we were all hanging out together because there weren't many of us. So um, then we had to have an emergency meeting the following day. And that's how we all kind of came to this understanding that we needed to do more in these spaces and that we could no longer have this conversation of perpetuating white supremacist culture in spiritual spaces that are supposed to be safe. And it's interesting because when I, when I have the opportunity to speak to young adults and say, you know, you, you honestly really don't know how far we've come from 2010 to now, like everything, you know, it's like they didn't really see how in 2010, there was a lot of things that were status quo. Yeah. You know, like a lot of people were getting away with a lot of stuff, a lot of bad behavior, a lot of microaggressions, a lot of flat out racist behavior. And there was nothing really for us to do about it because one, it was, it was hard to name. You know, like all of this ability to name things, like to name racism in the way that we're naming it now, like we can pinpoint that microaggression. We can, you know, we could say, oh, by him saying X, he, what he really meant was this, <laughs> you know, like we have this, un- these, un- these new understandings now and it just, they still weren't there back then, even though it wasn't that very long ago. So um, essentially after that year that the, the convention went downhill, it was, they had a really hard time sustaining it because we weren't going to let them get away with it. <laughs> you know, we were just like, look, you want to know something you want to, you want to talk about yoga, this, I was like, every, everything that you're trying to talk about, everything that you're making money off of are, are rituals and religions that are coming from indigenous people who can't practice what you've taken, what you've stolen, usurped, and you're making money from. And then you don't want to be true about it because of the fact that you're making money. So, you know, you're, you're building this complex of constant, you know, having to be healed and everyone's broken and, you know, we can't go down that road. And if you talk about racism, that's darkness, you know, that's not being of the light. And it was just, you know, it was like, it was just such a shame, you know, because when you see people who really think that they know what they're talking about, and then you have a whole group of people that on top of it also feel like they know what they're talking about. And then you have people like me who are just like, that's great that you think you know what you're talking about. But the bottom line is, is that this is what you're really doing. And because you're, you're so unaware that you don't understand. Mm -hmm. 
They get defensive. To me, it's even Mm -hmm. incredulous that that was put out as something that's funny. Mm -hmm. Like to say that as a joke. Exactly. Oh, are you sick of this? Like that's that's not even funny. That's not funny. Yeah, but I mean, when you're you're in a position where where 95% of the people are white. Yeah. And you don't really have anyone to challenge that kind of mentality. Sure. Ha 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 ha. That's funny. (laughs) You know, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a shame. You're right. It depends who's looking at it. It was a shame. It was a shame because it actually, I mean, it ended up being a a positive thing because for me, when I, and when I say it's a positive thing is because you know what, if things are not genuine and authentic and really come coming from a true place of spirit, then it shouldn't be in existence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all those people who lost their their bread ticket because they had to come to the fact that you know they were placating to racists they were placating mm-hmm. to white supremacists like we we really did hit this you know the line in the sand so to speak yeah. where people had to come face to face with things that they didn't want to come to terms with but we were forcing them to um and so that's how we moved to going into creating something that I'm very proud of and very happy about, which is social justice as a spiritual practice, which is SJSP. Mm-hmm. And that came out of this process because a lot of people were left without a place to be. Um, we did have a spiritual community here in Sacramento uh, that we were frequenting and a similar thing happened there as well. So it was kind of like we started we started telling people about themselves, people got mad and then we, we just didn't let it pass. You know what I mean? And so just like PantheaCon, it just kind of fizzled out and no one wanted to go because it was going to be drama. If they were going to let, if you're going to let white supremacist Vikings come (laughs) on the, (laughs) on the grounds, there's going to be an issue. And either, either the, the black and brown people are not going to come and then you're just going to be a racist convention. You're going to be a convention that's not safe to brown people. Do you want that? Do you want to be on the wrong side of history of that? Mm-hmm. Especially when half of the spiritual practices that are being amplified right now are indigenous <laughs> tribal things, right? So it was just everything just kind of came to a head. Yeah. And so we started to, uh, my partner and I, started to build a workshop And the workshop was, it consisted of roughly a dozen or so individuals who, you know, we were all different spiritual thinking and ideologies. And we just kind of all came together and we were just like, okay, if social justice was a spiritual practice, what would it look like? And so for me, it was very clear that because I came from a religious background that I did, the religious background that I did, you know, I was just like, well, I would want a way to to have missions, you know, so what, what could equate with missions? Well, I'm not going to go to Africa and get, you know, indigenous, you know, Africans to like say that they're going to take Jesus as their savior. I'm not going to do that as missions, but I will say that I could use social justice as a spiritual practice, allowing people to go out and using um, peaceful protest as a missions. Mm-hmm. So I started to, we started to make that, kind of cross comparison of what could work, you know, what could be done. And it's been a long time coming, you know, but it finally, I finally made it into a nonprofit 
last year. So social justice is officially a spiritual practice, which means that a main pillar of the social justice as a spiritual practice practice is peaceful protest. So we have enabled for peaceful protesters to have an extra layer of protection due to the First Amendment through religious practice. So much has happened in your life. (laughs) (laughs) And what I want to do, if you're okay with it, because now we're into, well, not another territory, another level of territory. So I think what I want to do is call time on this episode, but tell people not to panic because we're going to continue the conversation and have a second episode. Wait, what did they just say? (laughs) We we just started talking about this thing and now they're going to stop. We're going to keep going, but I'm going to divvy it up into two episodes so that everybody can catch up and, you know, basically have them be an hour each. So if you're good to keep recording, we'll keep going. But I'm going to sign off with listeners now for this episode, which is, oh, I don't have it in front of me. I think this is going to be episode 42, but our third season now of the My Yoga Audio podcast. And we are here with Jasper James. We're going to continue with episode 43, asking uh, some very important questions, looking at elemental activism. We're going to be talking about the Black Bill of Rights. We're also going to be looking at a community toolkit that is part of social justice as a spiritual practice. We're going to talk about how the things that Jasper and her team are doing helps connect people more with ways that they can get assistance with problems they might be facing in school, in community. We're going to talk about the framework for the six-part course that they have designed and talk a little bit more about all the experiences that they've had in life that have led them to this point in time today and where you can get engaged and get involved. I'm going to provide links in the show notes for everybody so you can start looking ahead of time of the next episode, but we're going to get right to it and start recording that next episode today. So that'll be followed up in about a week or two, and we will have lots more to hear from Jasper James. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. It's always a good time for your mind to be on the mat. Mm -hmm.